All right, guys, excited to host another Best Ball Roundtable. We hosted one of these uh, about six weeks or so. Sam Hoppin joined us, uh, Lou and a couple of the guys who are submitting to the Best Ball Data Bowl. But I wanted to get the crew back together again, and we have a couple new faces joining us. Of course, we got Ben back here from Fantasy Data Pros. Also, Nick, who uh, just got married and went on his honeymoon, and now he's ready to get his hand out of the dirt and really get his hand in the spreadsheets with us here. And another familiar face for all of you guys, Michael Leone, the author behind the Best Ball Manifesto, a man who I believe has spent more time with Best Ball Data uh, this offseason than probably anyone else. So, gentlemen, welcome to another Data Roundtable. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Nick, tell me, because you did, you, you unplugged, you touched some grass, you got married, you come <laughs> back... I mean, the best ball, the discourse, the drafts, the data, it's flying. So what what has been you, as you come up for air here, as you kind of survey the landscape, what has been your opinion on, you know, basically all the work that's being done trying to solve this new game? Yeah, so um, really interesting. People are just getting after it in, in May, June. It's just every year it just pushes up further and further. Um, it's good for the game of fantasy football good for underdog good for best ball it's a lot of fun i hate i i remember as soon as three years ago just having to unplug from from it like it just i was couldn't wait for that season to come up and now there really is no off season so um i'm noticing the people are loving the quarterbacks those elite quarterbacks uh wide receiver frenzy is as hot as ever um people just the running back position does not matter uh that, that's kind of what i'm seeing as i, I get back <laughs> here from from real world stuff yeah, that has actually been an interesting thing, Mike, and we've talked about this a little bit too with the wide receiver thirst on underdog, which has even reached new levels from previous years. And yeah. I see like I'll get comments on my streams like these wide receivers are insane or Austin Eckler going at pick 17. This is completely crazy. And yet I still haven't found someone like articulating an actual way to combat it in like a truly smart way. And I know you have, you've tried in these drafts, get some of your running backs early, but you do almost have to respect kind of how these draft rooms are going to a certain extent. Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, I think of like as a parallel, sometimes when you're in a super flex league, you know, and you might have what you think the quarterback value should be in the room could have a completely different take on what the quarterback value should be. And if you get, too far detached from the market whether you're right or wrong doesn't matter you're like operating at a disadvantage and wide receiver to some extent seems like that way in best ball with the importance of it where i don't know if the wide receivers have shifted up like too far in adp from where they theoretically should be but this is the room that you're in and what you have to deal with and you still have to like you can't just get totally killed at wide receiver like you run out of ammo at running back you can only spend so much ammo at running back before you know, you've got to fill three wide receiver spots a week. So it's it's an interesting push and pull where to some extent, like whether they've been pushed up too far or not almost doesn't matter. Ben, do you have any thoughts on that from like a data perspective? Like let's say an even a non-super flex draft. Let's just say every other drafter said, I'm taking three quarterbacks to start my draft, which meant by the time you decided to get around to it, you would be getting the 37th best quarterback or, you know, roughly around there. At that point, you would have to capitulate. You would have to get in there and grab your quarterback or risk having a zero, despite having, you know, the best running back, the best wide receiver. How do you think about that push pull of like, holy cow, the positional value you would be getting would far surpass what these quarterback drafters are doing. And yet you could have a dead team if you don't respect what the rest of the drafters are doing. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, um, definitely an interesting topic to explore. That's something I haven't personally explored in the data myself. Um, but I definitely think that's something that, you know, that could be something for the best ball data bowl that people kind of explore because that is a hot topic right now. Yeah, and I know uh, we are seeing some super flex drafts going on. Underdog just uh, rolled out another super flex tournament. And that is an exact thing that happens. And I know in the first wave of those, like I could not stomach taking a Dak Prescott, you know, in the first round. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm taking Cooper Cup over Dak Prescott. Like, I will figure this out. I will beat you at other positions. Luckily, with the super flex draft then, you were still able to get a guy like Anthony Richardson in the fifth round, Kenny Pickett in the sixth round. Now I asked the people on my stream, I was like, where's Anthony Richardson going? They're like, yeah, he goes in the middle of the second round. <laughs> He's super flex draft. So there does come a point where there are no more viable options. And Nick, I don't know if you've seen this with the wide receivers too, but there is like a really big cliff around probably pick 90, depending on your preferences on some of those players, where 
it really does reach flyer zone quickly as far as guys that have, let's say, kind of like league winning upside. Yeah, it's it's Juju Smith Schuster. That's the breaking point <laughs> that everyone's talking about. That I might get a fist pump. Oh out. no! <laughs> in, in the drafts, I feel like like that's where like are you comfortable with Juju Smith Schuster like being your fourth or fifth wide receiver? If you are, you probably have a solid RB room, probably an elite tight end or, or uh, uh, an elite quarterback. And I think the the underdog ADP is efficient enough where you can't have it all. You got to be uncomfortable yeah. somewhere and. Yeah. For whatever reason, people just aren't comfortable being weak at wide receiver. Um, so that might be something to exploit. And one interesting thing that I've been playing around with, and I think um, would be a good idea for the best ball data bowl, is um, football guys kind of – I was reading about their value over replacement in the course, Fantasy Data Pros, Python course for fantasy football. There's a whole chapter on value over replacement and how you can use that in your redraft leagues. Um, but basically, like without explaining that whole chapter – the football guys, they had like a, a little chart that said like once you draft a quarterback, you're the next quarterback you draft like is at 80% of the value that you initially calculated that quarterback at. And I think like a quick and dirty way for them to um to, to kind of try to do that. But there's more of a way to like optimize that specific value of like once you draft a quarterback, how valuable is that next quarterback you draft? Because that should dictate like where that next quarterback goes. And I think Try to trying to optimize that specific um, idea is a, is a really good idea for the best ball data bowl. Yeah. One thing that is somewhat complicated, but I don't think too complicated, is if you basically took this year's positional ADPs and matched them to the overall ADPs, and then like applied that to last year, and then you know simulated drafts of teams based on ADPs, and just you know simulated like thirty thousand teams and just looked at the and then like applied the just using the actual seasons from last year but just seeing how that would change like roster construction advance rates and stuff like mm -hmm. that um that's like a quick way like a quick sim that you could do that's like doesn't take a lot because you can just use the actual players results you just gotta figure out the mechanics of, of drafting teams with changing the adps to reflect this year's adps and then you could kind of yeah. see from that like maybe these teams that take like two running backs in the first six rounds and have Juju Smith-Schuster as their fourth, fifth wide receiver, maybe they're fine. You know, like you're getting, you just stop using wide receivers. Like we've kind of built up. You have to use wide receiver in the flex. I think that has changed a little bit. I think that's one way to combat it is like, you still need to be strong enough at wide receiver to not get killed at your three wide receiver spots, but you can start to build in some advantages by using running back at flex and be more or tight end, you know, taking multiple tight ends and, um, I don't know. I kind of want yeah. to change it there, but no. And I like what, you know, because a lot of my stream drafts are these wide receiver avalanche rooms. And sometimes you will get the insane values where Leone famously said uh, it's jump the shark. And it's like JK Dobbins will be 30 picks past ADP. And it becomes this screaming value. I did a draft today and I would say it was wide receiver heavy. And I started with Nick Chubb and Josh Jacobs. And I never had a running back faller that was like more than 10 picks past ADP. And because the room has now almost morphed into this amalgam of like we still prefer wide receivers but we're also smart enough not to let super big running back values fall and then i didn't end up taking my third running back until the double digit rounds again even being ready to do so so that's the other thing is these rooms are ever changing and i do think just an actionable piece of advice and this isn't specifically data is like kind of profiling your room looking at some of the teams how are they willing is a guy willing to take two three running backs in a row is it going to set the trajectory of the draft room in a way that might help you know, do you need to get out in front of the avalanche or not? Um, ben, any any thoughts on all of this? Yeah, I, I like what you said about, you know, observing the draft room and stuff. Sometimes it's hard to actually like take insights from data and like apply it rigidly. Uh, like what Nick said, we have like a value over replacement model in our course. And obviously like you would like to use that and follow it to a T. Um, but in these draft rooms, you kind of have to look at what other players are doing or what other, you know, entries are doing at the same time. Yeah. Like if you're, if you're combating a wide receiver heavy draft by taking two like decent running backs early, and then you have to take all wide receivers well before ADP to fill out your wide receiver room, like you kind of completely offset the value you got early. So some of that's guesswork. Some of it's just luck. Like Peter, the one you said, you know, you, you ended up in a good room to take those two running backs early. Sometimes it's like, well, I, you know, especially in round two, it's like, do I take Devonta Smith here just to get a wide receiver, even though I've got Tony Pollard ahead, just knowing that like 
later in the draft, I might get some running back values I can get, even though that like isolated decision, I would probably take Pollard over Devonta. One thing I've been having fun with, and this happens a lot in my drafts now, and Hayden actually wrote about this last year in a piece that I thought was really interesting where he looked at the type of players um, structural drafters like to take. There's definitely like a zero RB bro type of player. We have our, you know, sexy upside running back candidates and we like pass over the plotters. This is just like historically very vague stereotypes and same with robust RB drafters. They're the ones who often are backfilling with Juju Smith Schuster types there and basically doing those structures, but taking players that that type of drafter wouldn't normally take. So even me, like today, that Nick Chubb, Josh Jacobs, that is not a start that a normal drafter around these neck of the woods would want to start with. But then I'm filling it out with all the other wide receivers, the correlation and stuff that I like to do. And I did a draft the other night where my zero RB first two picks were Alexander Madison and David Montgomery. Two guys I'm like generally avoiding, but I'm doing the structure I like and just mixing up the player targets. And so that's kind of another fun thing that I just like getting forced into these unique builds where you still get the benefit of the structure, but the players you're mixing and matching are different. Um, yeah. What, one thing I was going to say is like adapting to the room, like as it's unfolding, um, I, I think where, where you see uh, players fall um, is, is when that value over replacement equation changes, even if people aren't aware of it is like that wide receiver avalanche happens. And all of a sudden the best pick for you to make is a running back, but that running back isn't your guy. So I think like, one thing of like drafting a lot of teams is like you, you become less um, uh, stubborn with who your guys are and, and you want to yeah. kind of flush out a portfolio. Um, but I think the best players are, are less uh, guy oriented <laughs> for lack of a better term. And they'll take, they'll take um, someone like a Kenneth Walker when he falls uh, just because um, it, it's, it's what makes more most sense structurally. And ETR has done some great work with what should you prioritize? What's at the bottom of that period and pyramid in terms of priority, what you should be prioritizing is, is more of the structure of your lineup and not guys. So, yeah. Yeah. It, the it, other the thing only, that's like, oh, go ahead. I was just saying, it's interesting, you know, Nick talks about the value of a replacement player and trying to apply that to best ball. I still think there's probably a lot of work to be done just on looking at how, you know, different distributions of like players match up um, in terms of, you know, wide receivers with an ADP of a certain range. Like what, what weekly scores are you on average actually eking out? If Juju Smith-Schuster is your fourth wide receiver, for example, or you've got like a bunch of guys at that wide receiver cliff, like Alan Lazard's there and some other guys, like what, what are you able to actually squeeze out? And, you know, a lot of people that love to draft wide receivers, like I'm coming around to, if I do go real wide receiver heavy early to only taking six or seven, like historically I want to take like eight, sometimes nine, but um, trying to avoid the diminishing point of returns that Nick talks about um, is is something you got to consider. It is one of the things that I think is tough about any positionally, uh, I don't know, robust strategy. Like if you go hyper fragile and you start with three running backs or you start your draft with six wide receivers, is that idea of you're boxing yourself out of an extreme value. Like to your point, Mike, if you start with six wide receivers, you're catching up at other positions. And then it's like, say a guy you like, I don't know, this would never happen in my draft, but say Jonathan Mingo's available 30 picks past ADP. And you're like, now you're wrestling with this idea of I'm trying to catch up positionally elsewhere. And there's this screaming value that structurally doesn't make sense for me anymore. Yeah. So in, in, in scenarios like that, like I said, like it's, it's important to, to kind of ADP value is on that pyramid. Right. And it just depends. And it's tough because we're human, we have human biases and whatnot. Whereas like a model would know the exact right decision to make to optimize your probability of, um, of, of advancing from that, that room or, or advancing to the next playoff round. And, trying to do all of that in a 30 second uh, time clock. I'm, I'm a fast draft guy. I don't know about everybody else. Like that's really, really hard to do. Um, team slow. You could, you could spend all night kind of trying to solve that equation. Um, so I, I, there, there's a give and take there, but it's, it's why we all love this game of best ball. I think. Yeah. I'll just say that we use value over replacement in the course, but it's typically applied to like a redraft scenario. Um, I'm not sure how well it fits. It obviously fits into you know, best ball mania and these contests and stuff like that. But in best ball, there's a lot of different considerations. Like stacking is more important, obviously. So I'm not sure how much like a value over replacement model you can just fo follow like kind of blindly. 
Yeah. And I think that goes back to, you know, when you read through Leone's manifesto and you see all these different levers you are trying to pull in a draft. And yeah. sometimes those levers work in opposition of each other. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like one dynamic I've been seeing in drafts a lot lately is a guy like Trevor Lawrence will fall um, unstacked. And so you're sitting there being like, am I taking Trevor Lawrence 25 picks past ADP? I'm not going to have anyone to stack him with, but it's an ADP value. And you're wrestling these two things. Hey, I have these other guys. I'm setting up a Brock Purdy double stack later. It's right there for me. Or do I take the value? How do you, Leone, I realize this is like the skeleton key to all of this stuff. How do you prioritize and weight all of these individual factors? Are are you using kind of that pyramid type thing? Um, or how are you putting more of a premium on correlation over ADP value? Yeah, it's difficult. I probably the start of my drafts and prioritizing kind of just getting really good value on players and then being super flexible as far as how the roster constructions can work out and building in the correlation. Cause I feel like, you know, once you do enough of these drafts, I have enough confidence to figure out the correlation. And I'd rather kind of take the swing of hitting the perfect correlation with a ton of value. Whereas if you see the value early in order to ensure the correlation, like you can't get that value back. So um, it's higher risk reward. I don't wouldn't say necessarily I use the pyramid, but I guess like there's four sort of boxes at each pick, you know, one's like positional allocation fit. One would be correlation. Uh, one would be ADP value. Um, so maybe it's more like three boxes. There, there's a fourth one, but my mind's blank, but kind of like when a guy ticks like three out of the four, I'm like, okay, I'll, you know, that that's the pick. So if I'm later in the draft, KJ Osborne is an example. Um, he's someone that I'm not really taking much of. I'm behind market on him. And, but if I have a green Bay, Minnesota stack and I need a wide receiver and we're right around KJ Osborne's ADP, like I'm just taking him, I'm throwing out, I guess the fourth box would be your personal opinion of the player as opposed to the ADP value. Like I'm just throwing that out the window. Like he checks three of the four I'm going with it. And then I guess with the Lawrence thing, you'd sort of have to consider that, um, it's hard in best ball mania specifically to see using a completely unstacked premium quarterback. Who's, who's kind of, a, uh, you know, he's going to get his value, not via rushing, but even then it would be like, okay, it's huge ADP value, but I'm for sure not getting correlation. Do I need a quarterback here? Do I even like Trevor Lawrence? Like aside from using ADP value, those are all the things to consider because there would be a certain point at which an unstacked quarterback would be plus EV. It just, you know, it's difficult to, to count. I don't think that, happens too frequently just given the way the draft rooms operate yeah ben what um you know i feel like we're you know the past few times we've done these data bowls mm -hmm. we we end up coming up with a bunch of problems that potentially would be fun to solve in the best ball data bowl obviously you guys have heard me talking about it on here on my streams ben for people who might this might be their first introduction to it why don't you tell people what the best ball data bowl is and maybe some some details if they're interested in submitting a team yeah, of course. So the Best Ball Data Bowl is basically a competition uh, that Fantasy Data Pros, uh, my website, um, is hosting along with Pete. Um, and basically, uh, the goal of the competition is to dig into uh, best ball, the Best Ball data sets um, that we've hosted on GitHub there um, and basically find some sort of insight from the data. It has BBM1 to BBM3 data. Um, we've kept it open-ended in terms of what sort of topics you want to explore. So you can explore anything from, you know, roster construction, ADP value, stacking, injuries, bye weeks. Um, we've kept it open-ended because we really don't, um, we really don't um, know like what people are going to come up with. Um, so um, yeah, that's pretty much the competition. Uh, there's prizes. There's a thousand dollar cash prize for the first place winner. Um, and then everyone who submits an entry also gets a t-shirt t-shirt which should be at the uh the bottom there um so they yeah. can see and on this uh github there's also like details for the the competition there's um uh, dates and stuff like that so you have all the information and there's also a sign up link yeah um and we've already started to see some submissions come in and one submission that I don't believe has officially been submitted, but has already been tossed out on uh, Twitter. Josh had a tweet thread that went viral the other day, and Josh was on the first Best Ball Roundtable talking about it. He had um, a 
thread about why he thought stacking didn't matter. And I will say, I want to get Leone's thoughts on it because Leone's research definitely shows stacking does matter. But I want to give Josh props of, I know a lot of people are keeping their submissions close to the vest, but I do think there's a real value in getting your ideas out there and having people, and sometimes they're the wolves, you know, go at it and give you feedback on how to make it better. And I guarantee you Josh's submission is going to be better after putting that out on Twitter, having people poke holes in like, hey, you might be missing this thing. You might be misapplying this. And then he can go back and kind of fine tune it. But shout out to Josh for putting it out there. Uh, real quick, Ben, did you have any thoughts on on his thread there? Um, no, but I think that's a good I think that's a good takeaway um, for other people who are looking to submit is to get your work out there early because you can get that early feedback. Um, obviously, like I think the submission deadline's like August 1st. So there's a long time between now and then um, to get appropriate feedback. And obviously there was a lot of feedback on this thread and stuff. Um, some other feedback I would give from this, not from like a fundamental perspective, like a best ball perspective, but for like other people who are looking to submit is to, um, you know, kind of pick one topic. I think Josh here, he picked a lot of different topics. Um, I think it's better for people to, you know, dial in on a single topic that they're trying to explore. So try to explore, you know, just ADP value or just stacking or just injuries um, and just dialing in on that topic instead of like spreading yourself, you know, too thin. Because I do think at the end of the day, and again, I'm not, I'm not the data guy, but I am the consumer of this stuff. Like I want an actionable takeaway. And one of the reasons I thought Mike's manifesto was so good is there were, and again, it's based on one year of sample, but there were actionable conclusions based on what happened of being like, Hey, the best time of the year to draft is maybe in the middle of the year because you avoid dead roster spots, but you gain as much information, et cetera. So if you can walk away with a concrete thing, I think that is the hallmark of a good submission. Yeah. Um, Mike, did you have any thoughts on, on this thread and, and kind of where you might um, have, uh, quibbles or questions with it? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I agree. It's like great to get your stuff out there. And like, sometimes there's things that are like hot button topics and, you know, we have a tendency to get defensive over, over beliefs that we hold to be true. So I uh, appreciate Josh putting it out there. The thing that I would have just done a little differently is that I tried to do in the best ball manifesto is that the finals advance rate by team stacks is first, it's just kind of hard to use the finals advance rate metric because it's such a small sample that it's so kind of at the mercy of what the individual player performances were in that, you know, in those particular weeks. So I think like a better way to look at stacking, not necessarily that the way I did it was the best way, but in some way being able to kind of measure how stacking actually changes your weekly upside and how that change in weekly upside would impact your ability to actually, you know, to win what the different prize amounts are and how the prizes are allocated. And I don't think like just looking at finals advance rate is able to do that because it's such a small sample. It's one year and it's a few specific weeks within one year. Whereas if we're trying to get at the systemic kind of signal and, and trend um, you need to sort of look at like why that happened. So um I think the stacking is still, you know, pretty important, but it's, it's good to get that out there. It's always good to have contrarian opinions to kind of make you go back and think about like where you could have tripped up or been wrong. Yeah. And I do think there, there is a level too of one of the reasons I feel like the stacking stuff came more intuitively to me was from playing a ton of DFS. And like, that is one of the game formats where we actually have a ton of data, so many slates relative to how many best ball slates. And we know what are the type of levers you pull to win a big tournament or even a small field um, DFS tournament. And so I think sometimes just having um, the knowledge from some other games and how that works and just using the thought exercise of, hey, if you got to construct a best ball lineup for week 17, you don't have to worry about any of the other 16 weeks like the rest of the competitors. You show up on that Sunday morning and underdog says you get to fill out your 18 spots. My guess is you would line up a bunch of stacks in that that lineup. Now, the question would be, how much are you willing to sacrifice in other things, ADP values or whatever, to get those stacks? That's where I think the interesting conversation is, because in a perfect world, you would want to stack, but to what cost? And I think that goes back to what you were saying, Ben, of maybe honing in yeah. your thing. Like if someone were ever to come up with a fun numerical way to say, this is a good amount that you could reach for a stack, or once you go past this threshold, it starts being 
a detriment to your overall team. I think data like that is really where it could be helpful for drafters. Yeah, and I think that's even more important, like that point of honing in on like a specific topic is even more important when you're doing something, when your submission is going to be controversial, um, when you're like, you know, pressing against, you know, conventional wisdom, which is stacking. Um, you should probably just hone in on that and try to go all in on that because if you can prove that stacking isn't important, that should win the contest. Um, <laughs> you also don't yeah. have to, you know, um, do ADP value, roster construction, like that should be it um, because you're going to have a lot of people coming in and, and presenting counter arguments because a lot of people have, you know, brought evidence that says that stacking is good. Yeah. And to your point about it being actionable, like when I did the manifesto, I kind of set out to be like, to solve that ADP value versus stacking. And I, I was basically unable to do that. I was like, well, they're both pretty important. <laughs> so, um, and it's hard because, you know, they're, they're the results of cumulative decisions. It's not like it's one decision point in, in a draft. I mean, you might have one decision point where it's like, do I take this falling ADP value or do I stack? But to get sort of the optimal stacking setup you're going to need to stack you know a handful of players which is a handful of picks to get in a really high percentile of adp value that's the result of all of your picks together so it was difficult i do think in the research i did where it seemed like game stacking over in turn when i say game stacking i mean having an opponent coming back not just stacking with team pass catchers the expected value I got seemed to increase quite a bit by bringing back an opponent player. And I feel like it, the data that I looked at showed that as a higher magnitude than I feel on intuition. So I would like to see like somebody look into that a little bit more. Like I'm kind of skeptical that the impact is quite as good as the data showed last year, or if it is as good as it showed kind of figuring out why that would be the case. I know Peter, we've gone back and forth, you know, on ship chasing. I talked a little bit about, maybe it's extra good to stack in best ball because it's more of an optionality thing where you don't have to use the bring back. Whereas in DFS, you have to use the bring back. Like you could use someone else's score. So you're kind of just free rolling the correlation upside. And then if it doesn't hit you, you have a backstop. But um, I definitely do think like, like um, I'm trying to pull it up, but basically you could see that just stacking your quarterbacks, you know, increase your expected value a certain amount in the, finals or semifinals or quarterfinals and then game stacking seem to like really boost that higher and um i'm just a little bit you know skeptical of my own results um so i would like to see somebody look into that more yeah and i i think um i, I want to just uh i do applaud josh for for uh trying to take the the road less traveled um being contrarian which is important when you're trying to take down a big tournament um however it just seems that stacking there's so many ways that it helps you build a good lineup um, aside from the correlation, I think the correlation is mostly baked into the ADP where it's like baked into the market where that, like you see, like there's patterns with like Trevor Lawrence might slide a little bit, but usually the team that takes Trevor Lawrence is also going to take Evan Ingram soon after. So like, there's like, um, kind of like some, some non-random pairings that go on, um, in, in drafts and, and it's the stacking and that's the type of thing that's built in. What's not really built in, I think is, is the week 17 game stacks. I still think I saw his DWK football, someone I follow on Twitter. Um, he's just a grinder on the Google sheets. He's, he's, he showed something the other day where um, people aren't, aren't game stacking week 17 as much as you might think. And it, that might be still an edge, even though in our bubble, um, all the podcasts, um, people that are on each other's shows, like they, they're talking about week 17 uh, correlation. So um, there is still edges there. I, I've, I've heard people talk about like stacking and, and trying to get two, three people paired up with your quarterback is going to make you take um, players that you wouldn't take otherwise. Um, so just keeping those, um, I guess, ancillary uh, benefits to stacking, I think that kind of goes overlooked um, as well and, and is why you see so many stack teams in those finals. Yeah. There to also is an point. element. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say to Nick's point on the people not game stacking week 17 as much as we think. When I had went through the data, you know, I pretended any week could have been a finals week. And I do remember seeing that there were more game stacks in week 17, but like not by as much as you would expect. The coincidental game stacks that occurred, you know, weeks one through 16 or whatever, were only at a slightly lower rate than the amount of game stacks in week 17. 
And, and I was going to, I remember too, I think it was, I don't know if you worked with him on it, Mike, but I know Levitan has put out his like millionaire maker um, research article on, on ETR over the years on how to tackle that. And even DFS on DraftKings, which is getting pretty close to a solve game as far as like how to approach it. Even then you guys found that people are still probably not double stacking enough in that contest. And there is this like niche bubble element and i fall prey to this a lot too where i'm like oh man everyone's taking a mon ross st brown and cd lamb at the like the one two turn you know because everyone's trying to get that correlation or whatever and even that the rate of that stuff i think if you really zoom out it's probably not happening at the overwhelming frequency that it feels like if you're just hanging out in discords and on best ball twitter all day yeah and it's cool the um what nick referenced I think it was ZWK. The data that he used comes from one of the guys, I think in the badge bros discord Chad, yeah. and he's starting to compile, you know, actual BBM four draft. So we can start yep. to make some guesses on this stuff because there is a whole meta of, okay, as we understand this information, it changes the way people are playing. And if it changes the way people are playing, you know, then it's going to change, you know, the results like the EV of, drafting wide receivers early is going to be less than last year, like assuredly, because one, everybody's doing it. And two, it just happened to work out particularly well last season. So um, it's cool that we do get to see some of this stuff come together. The uniqueness thing is an angle that I've had a tough time figuring out like how to parse out from the data. Um, what's, what's useful there in DFS. It's a lot easier because we can use, you know, raw ownership percentages and we have those. Whereas, for best ball, everybody's owned pretty much the same amount, except at the very end of the draft. Yeah. I would love just tossing out more ideas for best ball data submissions, kind of circling back to the stacking thing. What I think is really interesting for the stacking, and we have seen some monster regular season teams that overstack, say, one or two undervalued offenses. The Jags were a prime example of it last year. In the Now that best ball mania does feature regular season top prizes, that would be really interesting to explore because I think everyone agrees if you just stacked up two teams on your draft, that would not work in the playoff gauntlet. You'd need that team to score 50 points three weeks in a row or whatever. But could you stack up 11, 12 guys from two teams and win a regular season prize if you nail the two undervalued offenses? I'd argue you probably could. And so it'd be interesting to see like where the tipping point is with that, where overstacking might be more viable in the regular season versus the playoffs and there's actual real money behind that this year whether you can truly optimize for it i think is what you would need to uh to search for in the data yeah like the the end all be all is if you could actually simulate you know player outcomes for the upcoming season in a correlated fashion then you then you could do everything you wanted but that's really really difficult to actually do yeah. well but yeah i think stuff like that's you know really interesting to consider also, you know, one thing I didn't look into, but I only looked at stacks with a quarterback, you know, you might be able to squeeze out more, you know, maybe you can reduce the amount of correlated players to your quarterback, but just have more total mini correlations and stuff throughout the playoff weeks. And as Nick said, people aren't stacking week 17 as much as you think. And they probably most definitely are under stacking weeks 15 and 16. I know I'm guilty of that too, because it's just so easy to memorize the, the week 17 schedule, but probably it's worth considering a little bit more, even if it's just a one-off player you already have, just trying to match those up a little bit for, for the other playoff weeks. Uh, yeah, I was, I was in a draft the other day and I was just trying to take a look at those uh, 15, 16, 17 um, schedules. And the nice thing is, is that you can kind of cluster teams together that play each other, like Seattle, Pittsburgh, the New York giants, um, New Orleans are all kind of like under the radar teams that um, they play each other. And we're not, really afraid of their defenses. So that's a plus. And um, that, that can kind of knock out a lot of that correlation in, in the, in the, in the money weeks, the, the playoff weeks where um, you can really have a nice, well-correlated lineup and, and not have to reach for it or not have to like be on the clock with 15 seconds, trying to like figure it all out. Just keep a cluster of uh, like four or five teams that are correlated with each other. Um, and then maybe prioritize week 17 um, a little bit more than the others, but that's a strategy that I'm trying out recently. I've been having trouble and I don't know if it's just because I'm getting lazy and I don't want to have to juggle even more factors when I'm drafting, but I do struggle with this idea of like going out of your way. And when I say going out of your way, still selecting around ADP within structure, yada, yada, but going to get a week 16 bring back as opposed 
to just further correlating a team bet. So say the difference here would be, do you do a, say you have a main quarterback and a double stack and you already have a week 17 bring back. What would you rather have a week 16 bring back to that stack or make another bet? Say you have a running back Antonio Gibson and you add on Curtis Samuel you know, building out your commander's bet. Like what's more valuable to me? I always come back to, I'd I'd rather play the commanders as a team I'm betting on for the full season, as opposed to getting a week set 16 bring back. So like intuitively for me, the week seven, 16 bring back stuff has always been hard to justify over other concerns. Yeah. I mean, it, it's difficult, but I think you, the one thing I saw too is we underestimate like how much your expected value changes just by increasing your odds of getting to the finals. Like we obviously mm -hmm. want to optimize in the finals, but that was the one of the things I found like regulars, like increasing your odds of winning of just advancing in the regular season because of, you know, the compounding math of like your long odds of winning the quarterfinals, semifinals, like it has a pretty big impact on your odds of being able to win the contest. Even if your odds, once you make the finals itself are lower than some other teams, so I do think like it's still pretty important to try and maximize your quarterfinals, semifinals. In that specific scenario, I'm probably just making the team bet, like you said. But I've definitely had drafts where I kind of get lazy. Like my like, there's just no correlations there at the end or the middle, and I probably should be thinking about these common opponents that Nick's talking about a little bit more. Where you might just be between a couple of players that at this specific pick, you're not really taking a bet on a week 17 game stack. You're just filling a position that if, you know, took the extra time to learn the schedule a little bit, you could, could free roll some more upside. Yeah. It, I, I have the, I have the established the run like chart. It's uh, I have that open while I'm drafting and that's, you start to kind of get those clusters, the teams that you're targeting together, but it, it does become very difficult, like prioritizing even amongst those teams. Cause um, if a lot of times they're going in the same area because they're all similar types of teams, similar bets, um, and it can become difficult. And one thing that I try to do, um, and, and Sam Hoppin kind of showed the, the draft capital, um, uh, value curve is, is what I call it. One of the early submissions did a, did a draft capital curve and the, and the slope of that curve, I'm going to try not to get too nerdy here. It's not linear. Obviously your um, early round picks, like if you take AJ Brown, like stacking AJ Brown with other Eagles players, especially Jalen Hurts, is way more important than stacking uh, Terry McLaurin with Sam Howell later in the draft. Because those early picks, like if they don't hit, you're probably not going to win. Um, I know uh, Pat Corain won last year without Barkley doing a whole lot for him as his second round pick, but that's pretty rare. He had a whole lot of other stuff go really, really well for him. Um, so that is how I would prioritize it is just like, try to keep in mind like who who your core players are that you took in your top six seven rounds and that should be your your priority for stacking in the playoff weeks in my i opinion. think that's a great example that actually ties together the past two things we've talked talked about overstacking then week 15 16 and the eagles are a perfect example because it is expensive if you want to do that premium double stack say you even toss on dallas goddard and you just have the four best players and then rashad penny's a value and you're like all right i'm just going to omega stack the eagles that is actually a situation where i might want to prioritize a week 16 giants bring back being like I'm going to need the Eagles dropping 45 to 50 points in these playoff weeks because I have such a massive investment. How do they get there? Well, the Giants better be pushing them in week 16. So I do kind of like that idea of like, if you are overstacking an offense, that actually might be one of the more green light scenarios to look at those 15, 16 bringbacks. Yeah, I think you you kind of sacrifice, especially with the what you're calling the Omega stack, which is just, a, that's a great term. Um, the you're kind of giving up some regular season. Like you might be a little thinner to, to make the playoffs just because if, if that team kind of underperforms or, or, um, or just has like a bad start to the season, you, you might have a tough time advancing, but once you're in there, it's just such a small sample and that you're, you're just banking on, on volatility. And uh, you might be able to carry week to week with different pieces of that stack going off on different weeks and kind of protect yourself and raise your floor a little bit in the, that three week span, which might be a little counterintuitive just going for the the full send on a team like that. Yeah. Um, Nick, I did want to ask you because you, um, you are now working at fantasy data pros, but you started by taking the course, correct? That was yeah. kind of like what got your, your feet uh, wet in, in this space. Yeah, I, I do kind of want to plug, uh, I guess my journey. I'm, I'm about three years into what, what I would call my data science programming journey. 
Uh, before that, I was a teacher for eight years, middle school science teacher. So um, I taught a little bit of uh, programming, nothing too intense, like website building and stuff. But I mean, just obsessed with fantasy football, like probably most people watching a fantasy football podcast in, in July, <laughs> June, July are. And you start to come up with these projects. So for me, like one of the first ones was I wanted to see um, – uh, who ETR was higher on than, than underdog ADP. So in my Google sheets, I learned how to do V lookups and, <laughs> and merge two data sets. And from there, like the, the project started to expand. Like I got into like a value over replacement calculation and um, I found my way into the fantasy data pros course. Um, and that was the one that really clicked for me because Ben did such a good job of the projects that he chose were like ones I kind of already had in mind. And he had some ideas that I didn't even think of. And it, I just, I, it felt less like I was learning how to code with Python and more of just like, I'm, I'm gaining skills that is going to help me win. And um, Ben, Ben will push back on that a little bit. It's first and foremost to learn Python. Yeah. We, we're not going to promise that this, this is not like the, uh, the fountain of youth or, or, or a one, uh, one weird trick that, that uh, your, your league mates will hate type of uh, course it's uh, it is first and foremost like an educational platform and as a former teacher um i do uh really want to compliment ben it, it's delivered in such a way that um it, it will click I'm, I'm telling everybody just give it a try um and then to feed into the best ball datable i wish that when i was taking the course that the best ball datable existed because the data there is very clean Yep. If you take the course, you'll understand what that means a little bit. It's clean data. It's you don't have to do a whole lot of work to get it to a point where you could get insights. Um, there's not too many like columns that you need to worry about and wrangle with. Um, right now, um, I, I do help out with fantasy data pros, but um, I, I work with uh, a small business loan company. I was able to network my way through um, the friends that I made learning how to code um, through uh, uh, a site that partnered with fantasy data pros, Gridiron AI. I got a real life job. Um, I left the teaching profession. I retired um, because I was able to network. And, and um, I just I really encourage people to get into this space now um, because this is the way that you, you break into data science as a career um, is building a portfolio of projects that you can show in an interview and, and talk intelligently about. Um, and and yeah, the best ball data bowl, like it's it's like it's right there for you. If you come up with a project that uses that data put it on your GitHub profile. It, it's a really easy on-ramp into this, into this space. And you, it'll, it's like an exponential growth curve. Like it'll snowball. You'll, you'll, it'll click. I promise. Yeah. And Nick's story of, you know, finding fancy data pros and then finding a job, you know, as a data scientist is kind of what we're going after, you know, with our courses and stuff. Like he said, um, this is not like the founding of youth. Like you're not going to win your league or win best ball mania. Um, if you take our course, we, I, I don't want to guarantee that because I can't guarantee that. Um, but we can't guarantee that, you know, you'll learn Python and stuff. Um, so, um, yeah, props to Nick. Um, it's not easy to get a job as a data scientist, but hopefully, you know, our courses help. And I was going to say, Mike, like even over at ETR this year, you guys now actually have a full data science team. Like the industry now yeah. within a specific smaller site can support a team with this kind of work. That's how you know, in demand, this kind of stuff is. Yeah, we hired two full-time people this past year, which was a huge investment by us. Uh, a lot of pressure on me to make it work. So hopefully it pays <laughs> off. But uh, no, it's, there's just, I mean, you kind of want to be at the forefront of predicting sports. And as the market gets sharper and everything, like you need to have some skills with data. You're not going to be able to intuit everything. So I'm, think it's awesome what Ben is doing with fantasy data pros. I think especially in today's day and age, like in conjunction with some of the AI stuff out there, like chat GPT, like the barrier of entry to code is a lot lower than I think people realize. And like you sign up for Ben's course, you have chat GPT as help and like you're working on projects that make sense to you while you do it. It's it's not as difficult to get into as people realize. I think sometimes with Karain, I'm kind of pushing them. I'm like, you know, you could probably do more of this stuff than I, than you probably give yourself credit for. So like my, for example, my journey, you know, I took a data science bootcamp a handful of years ago and I started, you know, when I was, me and Dink were first doing projections, I was just like hand copying and pasting like AccuScore, like <laughs> website projections into a spreadsheet and like making a value calculation on players. Like, so kind of like the need to get better, just 
evolved over the course of time and and picked up things here and there but still like like my coding knowledge is like really not that great it's just you kind of if you're persistent you figure out what you need to do to solve the project and you know there's a really it's a really good time if you have kind of a little bit of everything where you've got the domain knowledge and you've also mm -hmm. take the time to learn some coding and stuff where you can be really self-sufficient whereas in the past it's been I think maybe the more specialized you do one or the other. Yeah. And we talked about this on the last stream, but uh, we talked about how like the best way to learn coding basically is not to apply it to topics you don't enjoy is to apply it to basically topics you enjoy and you have domain knowledge in. Um, so the whole purpose of the course is really just to hook people into Python and SQL and all these like super valuable skills that, you know, once you learn it through fantasy sports, you can apply it basically anywhere else. And you're not going to lose the skill just because you're applying it to like a different domain or something like that. And that's where a lot of the value comes from. And, and not to mention, I was just going to say, it also helps you flag errors more easily. Like, you know, Lou was on the stream today looking at some of his um, uh, touchdown regression candidates. And it's like, you kind of know if you are in the fantasy football space, like, yeah, Kenny Pickett in the Steelers offense didn't score as many touchdowns as their red zones indicate seeing him below that trend line checks out. Whereas if you saw, yeah. I don't know, like Tua or Patrick Mahomes below, you'd be like, wait a second, those guys had great touchdown years. This doesn't check out. I think that just helps you understand the data better too. Yeah. And I, I was just going to chime in, like, just don't be afraid to, um, to, like you're going to hit roadblocks. You're going to fail. You're, you're, you're not going to be able to, to solve every project you go after. But that, I think one of the reasons why it worked out for me is like, I kept coming back to it. And I also reached out and I talked to guys like Ben, Ben was super helpful when I would get stuck and like asking just the dumbest questions. And, um, and it, that's one thing about like the programming community, nine times out of 10, like that dumb question is going to be met with like a very detailed, well thought out answer, like almost like a full essay, like let's hop on a call and they'll like walk you through it. Like there's a lot of people in that space. So it's just a really good place to be and a good place to try to network, which is a big part of it as well. Yeah, definitely. And with our course, we actually have a discord, you know, where people can ask questions and stuff. And I really try to make sure that when someone asks, you know, a question, I answer it like in a detailed manner. Cause I, I went through the same thing. I was self-taught. Um, I didn't go to school for programming and stuff. I learned through, you know, books and online courses. And, you know, the worst thing of, you know, taking those courses was when you get stuck and you really don't have like a support line to like ask a question to. So in our Discord, you know, you can ask questions, we'll answer and stuff like that. And usually other course members like chime in as well. And it's a really helpful community. Yeah. Um, seems like a good time to mention uh, the Fantasy Data Pros course. Uh, you can get 25% uh, off with promo code Pete if you guys want to sign up for that. Um, you can obviously start with the football course. They also have it for basketball, baseball, and they're constantly adding more materials and developing the courses and have gotten lots of good feedback from the people in the Deposit Kingdom who have taken the course. And like I said, feel free to hit up Ben or myself, anyone with questions. Um, Leone, I don't I, want to get out of here. You or did you have something to say here? I, I was just gonna say I've definitely geeked out over Ben's uh three-point shooting oh, yeah. model. That's what I was gonna model. ask you about. Yeah. Yeah. So I just I just had to mention that I geeked out over that. I love the the three-point model. Yeah, uh, I had to was, I had to put a pause on that. I was spending way too much time on <laughs> <laughs> Um I'm not even sure if it was totally like profitable, but it was a really fun project. So um, for those of viewers that don't know, I, I built like a three point model um, for sports betting uh, where I pulled in lines and stuff like that and like simulated um, players like three points performances for each night and then compared that to the lines and the expected values. Um, and I used it for a little bit. I was like, I, I think I set aside like like 500 bucks um, and I turned a little bit of a profit, but I didn't keep going with it. I was just spending way too much time on it. So. And, and I'll just say like that project was very ambitious. Those lines are very, very hard to beat. So even being able to yeah. beat them like a little bit is super impressive. And I want to, again, touch on the fact that like the skills and patterns and, and concepts that you pick up once you dive into data science in any topic, like fantasy football is a really hard problem to solve. Like best ball, DFS, like even beating your buddies in a redraft league, like that's way harder to do with data science just because there's not a whole lot of low hanging fruit. Cause there's so much content out there um, around fantasy football and people trying to solve this problem in many different ways where 
I go to my small business loan company job and like the problems are a little easier to solve because like there is that low hanging fruit. So like, I, again, like I, I really want people to see the value in taking a course like fantasy data pros um, or just, I mean, exploring the space a little bit more. It, I mean, it, it will make you think in a way that will bring value to your life in a lot of different areas. There you go. And uh, then you can create the uh, the monsters out there who are developing these models and not sharing them publicly and just uh, using <laughs> yeah. it for their for their own accord there. I mean, it might just to put a bow on it too, it does. I mean, with all the stuff you you've done a lot of the the modeling and stuff for DFS and, and projections, it does really feel like best ball is just this incredibly complicated puzzle that is ripe for data analysis, probably more than any other fantasy football format. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little easier because you don't have everyone's sort of playing the same game. Whereas like managed leagues, you have like in-season waivers and strength of opponents. So there's just a lot of other variables like who you would start. Whereas this is especially like even I mean, the scoring is literally algorithmic each week. Like it's your best possible lineup. So um, it definitely lends itself towards towards the nerds. So I absolutely love it. <laughs> Um, one other thing I wanted to mention on the best ball data bowl that, uh, Ben did mention. So everyone who submits will get a free t-shirt compliments of our friends over at underdog. This is another one of the benefits to submitting early is you guys can get your t-shirt. The second you have submitted, we'll get your email. We'll send it over there too. So if you want to be rocking this shirt this summer, get your submissions in early. It is in the store, but for a price that no one would purchase it for, this is going to be just for best ball data bowl submissions. And we'll also get our guy, Mike Leone, a shirt over here as well for all of his great work with the manifesto, which again, um, if you are interested in best ball data, if you're interested in the data bowl, you definitely have to start by reading the best ball manifesto. I think it'll probably be two pronged one. It'll give you a million ideas and two, it'll be a little daunting knowing uh, how good it is. So Mike, that is a, that is a compliment to you on, on how much your piece this year has shaped best ball discourse. It has changed the way I think about things. And that's, what's so fun about all of this. If you guys can get research out there that makes us drafters stop in our tracks and think about doing something differently, you will have uh, completed the mission, I would say. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that too kind, but as you said, it'll, it'll make you think of a million other questions. I have a million other questions, even having written it and so many other things that I would have liked to have done with it. And, you know, you're always worried people kind of especially the more descriptive data, you're kind of worried people will take, uh, have, have too firm a takeaways when the idea is to understand what happened last year, but we have to think like super critically over all the changing landscape. Nick mentioned the elite QBs. We've talked about the wide receivers, you know, it's, it's going to change the way we draft. So if you really understand what happened and why it happened though, it gives you a better chance to make the correct decisions to how things might change in the future. Ben, any, uh, final words here before we get out of here? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just super excited to see what everyone comes up with. Um, like you guys were just saying, the best ball data is just super interesting data. And like what Nick said, there's a low barrier to entry, um, to working with the data. It's pretty clean. Um, not super complicated. It's not like there's 200 columns. So pretty much anyone can get started with, uh, with the competition. Um, and that's part of the reason why we set it up. Uh, we wanted basically an alternative to, you know, the NFL big data bowl, which is using tracking data, which is super complicated to work with. Um, so, you know, best ball is a lot easier to work with and it's still like a very rich data set. So super excited to see what people come up with. For sure. And like you said, um, whether you're in the fantasy data pros uh, discord, whether you're in the deposit kingdom discord, lots of guys who are submitting and they're sacrilegious who came on the show, Neil Farley, who came on the show, Lou, who came on the show. They've been coming on my best ball breakfast stuff. Lots of sharp people who are willing to help you out, who are just genuinely excited to dig in and solve these puzzles. I mean, Mike Leone is a guy who has spent time helping me build spreadsheets for DFS partly because he's a nice guy and partly because I think he just enjoys messing around it. with that stuff. <laughs> exactly. So lots of help to be had. Um, feel free to hit us up. If you guys got questions about the best ball data bowl, about submitting all of that good stuff. So for Ben, for Nick, for Mike, I'm Pete. We'll see you guys out there. Good luck with those submissions.